We'll now read the rest of chapter 5, Daniel 5, beginning at verse 17, reading through to the end of the chapter. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up your, yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mine, Mine, Tikel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, Mine. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tikel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. As far the reading of God's word, may God bless the reading of his word, as well as the proclamation of his word this afternoon. Following the sermon, in response to it, we'll sing from Psalm 46, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing you'll notice at the beginning of Daniel 5 is that really there's a whole lot that we're not being told in Daniel's account. First of all, chapter 4, you may remember, ended with Nebuchadnezzar on the Babylonian throne. And now in verse 1 of chapter 5, suddenly we're introduced to someone called Belshazzar, who is apparently now the king. So the transfer of power from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar isn't even touched upon in the text. And the history, it's quite an involved story. It involves assassinations, it involves a brief reign of one king and an absent monarch who moved the royal palace to another city. Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, was, in Babylonian thinking, a heretic. And he was a worshiper of the moon god, not of the god Marduk. And he had moved to a distant city, to Tema in Arabia, and he had moved 10 years previous. And so he had left his son Belshazzar as a kind of vice-regent in the capital, in the city of Babylon. 
which is why he's referred to in our text as the king. Belshazzar was probably the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. But the Holy Spirit saw fit to include none of these details in the text of the story. Another aspect of the story that receives no mention in the biblical text is the immediate context of this great feast that Belshazzar was was holding in his palace. The Babylonian Empire, following a number of years of turmoil, was now nearing its end. And the enemy was quite literally at the gates. The Persian armies were amassed outside of the grand center of the Babylonian Empire. So this great feast was being held behind the supposedly secure walls of Babylon while the Babylonian Empire itself was on the verge of collapse. So many years had passed since the events of Daniel 4 had occurred. And when this episode occurred, Daniel had already become a very old man. Probably he was about 90 years old. Now that final verse of the first chapter of Daniel, that verse you may remember says, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. It reminds us that in the midst of all the upheaval, in the midst of kings coming and kings going, empires growing and then collapsing, There was one constant, and that constant was the presence of God's servant, Daniel. So here in this this climactic moment, Daniel is called in, and he takes center stage once again. The Lord had used Daniel decades earlier to reveal his sovereign will to King Nebuchadnezzar. And now once again, in desperation, another Babylonian ruler turns to the Lord's prophet, after being failed by the experts of the world whose counsel he actually preferred. So what was this party all about anyway? What was there to be partying about if the enemy was threatening? You would think that a prudent king would have been preparing himself, preparing his armies, preparing the people to face the enemy, making plans, doing what was necessary to make sure all was ready for the battle ahead. But instead, Belshazzar took this opportunity to hold a great feast. And to describe this as a great feast is an understatement. This was the party of parties. Present there at this party were a thousand of Belshazzar's lords, along with the king's wives and concubines. And so, This was actually quite a production, and Belshazzar was putting on a very big show for the elites of Babylon. As the Persians were approaching, as they were drawing near, Belshazzar appeared to not have a care in the world. He was in charge. The walls of the city were impregnable. No one could ever get through. And although the enemy was there and could lay siege to the city... They had more than enough supplies to outlast any siege. Either Belshazzar was extremely foolish, and he was overconfident to an astonishing degree, really, or he wanted to convince every member of Babylon's high society of his confidence. 
Xenophon was a Greek historian. He lived around 400 years before Christ. And he described in his history, he described Belshazzar as a riotous, indulgent, cruel, and godless young man. And you can see in the opening verses of chapter 5 that Xenophon's evaluation of Belshazzar appears to have been quite accurate. This grand feast was certainly no quiet, staid, official uh, affair of state. What do we read in our text? We read that Belshazzar drank wine in front of the thousand. And the fact that we're told that directly means that he did some serious drinking. And then we read that he tasted the wine. Then we read that he drank the wine from the golden vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And then we read, the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank. And then again, they drank wine. I think you get the picture. Judging from the number of times that the words drinking and wine are used in this passage, we can know that the fruit of the vine was certainly flowing freely that night. So Belshazzar was there playing the big man. Like so many men who have made it into positions of power in this world, he was hiding his insecurities under a cover of bravado. He wanted to remind his people, and perhaps he even wanted to convince himself, of his greatness, even if it was borrowed greatness. Because he took those stolen holy vessels and he, he deliberately used them for profane purposes. And in doing so, he was proclaiming himself to be the Lord and the Master of all things. He was asserting his domination over the gods, and specifically over the God of Israel. Even though he had absolutely nothing to do with the fall of Jerusalem, with the fall of Israel, or the destruction of the temple, none of those things. He had no part to play in the glory of the Babylonian Empire. His, his, his glory was borrowed. But for Belshazzar, his lack of personal accomplishments doesn't seem to matter very much. After all, he was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's another point that you may have noticed is repeated several times in this chapter. And so having used these golden vessels in a display of power in front of his nobles and his wives, the gathered crowd drank some more and praised these gods, ironically listed twice as gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is an ironic description of the rank and absolute foolishness of what Belshazzar and his entourage were doing. But what happens next reveals yet again that man in his, his self-imagined greatness, his, his self-declared greatness, is revealed in the end to be a pathetic little creature, completely humiliated when confronted with the majesty and the evaluation of the majestic God. Because right in the midst of the festivities, the self-congratulations, the, the idiocy of what was going on, what Belshazzar is doing, and all of his yes-men surrounding him, uh, giving their approval, the Lord strikes terror into his heart. The fingers of a human hand appear to Belshazzar and write a message meant just for him. And we read that what Belshazzar saw affected him from top to bottom. 
His color changed, so his face revealed the shock. His thoughts alarmed him, so his mind and his heart were stunned. His limbs gave way, we're told. And this is a play on words. We don't see it in English, but it means something a little bit more drastic and something a lot more embarrassing happened to him. And perhaps as a result of the amount that he had drunk, combined with the shock of what he had seen. And his knees knocked together. So he was shaken to the very core. And being shaken, he looks for a solution. And it's funny how just as Nebuchadnezzar had done before, he looks in the wrong place. He goes back to those those failed experts, back to the Chaldeans, the enchanters, and the astrologers who had never helped before. And he offers them a a reward. Royal clothing and a third place in the kingdom. So he had the second place in the kingdom himself. So the third place in the kingdom was the highest honor that he could bestow. But as usual, these supposed wise men of Babylon are impotent. They're powerless. And this leads to even greater consternation on Belshazzar's part. But then, in the story, we're suddenly introduced to another new character who appears out of nowhere. It's someone who either had not been invited to the party in the first place or someone who had chosen deliberately not to participate in these festivities. And our text calls her the queen, but she's actually the queen mother. She's Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, Belshazzar's mother. And she reminds Belshazzar that there is actually, indeed, someone around who would be able to help. Now, this man had been disregarded completely. He also wasn't present at the great feast. He was an old man by now, but the queen mother knew that in him is the spirit of the holy gods, or better translated, in him is the spirit of the holy God. This man, Daniel, he was a true wise man. He had the wisdom of God. And it's interesting that the queen mother refers to him by his Hebrew name, Daniel, not by the pagan name that he had been given such a long time ago by Nebuchadnezzar. It seems, from what we read here, the brief passage about the queen mother, it seems that she was a believer, which is probably why she hadn't been at the party in the first place. But Belshazzar is desperate. He calls Daniel in. He makes the same offer that he had made to his wise men. Now Daniel, in effect, tells him that he can keep his gift, but that he would do what Belshazzar asked, that he would be able to help. But before he does so, he reminds Belshazzar of all of the history that he had apparently forgotten. After being ignored by Belshazzar, after being cast aside in favor of the yes-men magicians of the king's court, the elderly Daniel doesn't waste a moment and waste this opportunity to preach the gospel of repentance. To call Belshazzar to account for his sin. And so Daniel proclaimed the truth that Belshazzar was suppressing in unrighteousness. And he reminded Belshazzar of the following facts. How Nebuchadnezzar, first of all, had received the kingship and everything that went with it from the hands of the Most High God. How that greatness 
which he had received from God was the source of all the power and the glory that he had. And how every, everything that Nebuchadnezzar had had been taken away from him by that very same Most High God who had given it to him in the first place until he finally learned the most important lesson of all, and that is that God is in control. He rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Now Nebuchadnezzar, in a previous generation, had learned that lesson. But what about Belshazzar? Belshazzar hadn't humbled his heart, even though he knew all of this. He had lifted himself up against the Lord of heaven. He had defiled the vessels of the Lord's house in his pride, in his arrogance, his rebellion. And finally, he had worshipped objects that were actually created things, gods that do not see or hear or know. And he had refused to honor the God in whom he lived and moved and had his being. So Belshazzar here, he serves as a living example of what Paul writes in the letter to the Romans in chapter 1. Although he knew God, he did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but he became futile in his thinking and his foolish heart was darkened. Claiming to be wise, he had become a fool and he had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And because of this, God gave him up in the lust of his heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of his body, because he exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And because of that, because of what Belshazzar had done, the Lord's evaluation of Belshazzar was also a declaration of the sentence that the Lord had pronounced. The mysterious hand that had so greatly terrified the king had written four words, mine, mine, tikel, and parson. Well, the magicians couldn't figure out the riddle that God had set before them, but once again, the Lord revealed the meaning to Daniel. And these words are, first of all, a series of weights. First, the mina, which is the largest weight. Then the shekel, or tekel, tekel in Aramaic, which is a fraction of a mina. And then a half shekel, peres. So, so what do we make of that? A series of weights. Well, the words can also be read as a series of verbs, action words. If you use different vowels with these same consonants, you end up with verbs. And that's possible with Hebrew and Aramaic because originally these languages didn't include vowels. They were added later on, above and below and within the letters. And so as verbs, as these action words, you get the following list of actions. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. So the days of Belshazzar's kingdom were numbered. That kingdom was being brought to an end. Belshazzar had been weighed in the balance and he had been found wanting. He hadn't measured up. And finally, his kingdom would be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So having been 
evaluated and having received his sentence, Belshazzar kept his promise for what it was worth, which by now wasn't very much. He clothed Daniel in these royal robes. He put a gold chain around his neck, and he proclaimed him to be third in command of an empire that only had hours left to exist. But again, here we see how a lot of historical detail is not included, how God did not see fit to include these things in the account of Scripture, how he gets directly to the heart of the matter. We're not told how it's happened, how it happened exactly, though we know from sources outside of the Bible that the people of Babylon actually welcomed the invaders to enter because they were sick and tired of Belshazzar and Nabonidus and the royal family. All of the plans and all of the preparations that have been done in Babylon, the strongest and most resilient fortifications that you can build, they aren't going to make a lick of difference if the people of the city actually welcome the enemy to enter through the gates. So that's what happened. One moment, Belshazzar was so wrapped up in showing himself to be the big man, wrapped up in his delusions of grandeur, that he was partying and exalting himself in front of his yes-men, even while the enemies of the empire were knocking on the door. And the next moment, he's dead. The Lord had spoken. The Lord had made his evaluation and executed his sentence. There, this time, there would be no second chance, as there had been for Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord's patience had come to an end, and the purposes that he had had for the Babylonian Empire had also come to their end. The Lord showed himself here to be the God of Almighty, whose almighty power was proclaimed by the prophets. For example, by the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, where he said this, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understand, understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. That's what the Lord did, brothers and sisters, to this wicked ruler and to his kingdom. He brought this prince to nothing. He made this ruler of the earth emptiness. He blew on him and he withered. And the tempest carried him off like stubble. And so the Lord declares in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And so Darius the Mede received the kingdom. We read that in the last chapter, last, last verse of this chapter. And that wording there is very important. He received the kingdom. It was given to him. Nebuchadnezzar had received the kingdom. And after being humbled by the Lord, he had finally acknowledged that reality. Nebuchadnezzar's successors had also received the kingdom from the Lord. But with their delusions of grandeur, they refused to acknowledge it. And now Darius the Mede, which may be another name or title for Cyrus, the king of Persia, 
had received the kingdom from the Lord. Once again, we're reminded of that beautiful confession that Daniel made in chapter 2, verse 21, which proves again and again to be so important in the book of Daniel. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. That is our God. So we're reminded of God's sovereignty, but at the same time, we're also reminded that God's patience doesn't last forever. Belshazzar knew better, but he preferred to live with the delusion that he was ultimately the man in charge. He had had access to the Lord's messenger, to Daniel. His own mother knew the truth, but he spent the final night of his life in the company of a thousand yes-men and who knows how many wives and concubines who would never ever dare to speak a word against him who would always and continually tell him exactly what he wanted to hear and nothing else, who would never challenge a thing that he said or did. That's what he wanted. He had completely rejected God's wisdom and he had fully embraced and wholeheartedly embraced the wisdom of the world. And so that very night, he was killed. Belshazzar had experienced the best of what life had to offer. He had everything that the hedonist could desire. But when we read those words that very night, we may be reminded of what the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, the Lord Jesus told a parable of a rich man who had big plans. He planned to build bigger barns, to store his grain and his goods, and to spend the rest of his life relaxing, eating, drinking, and being merry. Luke 12, Jesus says this, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So that very night, Belshazzar's soul was required of him. He had been weighed in the Lord's balance and he had been found wanting. And so in an instant, everything that he had was taken away. And unless he repented at the last minute, which we never don't hear about, there would be nothing left for him but an eternity being spent as the rightful object of God's righteous anger. And so when we think back, to Nebuchadnezzar's dream of that great statue. Daniel 5 describes the first stage in its destruction, its decapitation. There goes the head. The golden head is lopped off. All the best laid plans of men are overturned by the Almighty God who was working through the events of history to bring about the coming of His kingdom. God is sovereign. God is in control. The delusions of the powerful, which we read so much about in Daniel, those delusions continue to guide their rebellion against him today, some 25 centuries later. Things haven't changed. Now, the forms of the rebellion have changed. These leaders no longer bow down to literal idols of gold or silver or wood and stone. Those idols, we know, have all been secularized. 
and they've been clothed in scientific garb. When you see members of society's elite today, the emperors of our world, the multi-billionaires, like Elon Musk, like Peter Thiel, maybe you've heard those names before. If you haven't, look them up. They're using their fortunes to promote something called the transhumanist movement. And if you haven't heard of transhumanism, it's something else that we as Christians need to be very much aware of. So what are they doing? What are these modern-day emperors doing? They're funding projects, scientific projects, with dreams of eternal life. You can see that in that rebellion against God, rebellion against His sovereignty, rebellion against life lived in wisdom in God's world. That rebellion is only continuing. The only difference today is that the powerful have much more at their disposal than the Nebuchadnezzars and Belshazzars of the ancient world. But we know, brothers and sisters, that they will not succeed. When you read about these things in the news, it can be disturbing to hear about the genetic manipulation that's being done. The development of technologies like Neuralink, computer technologies that are directly interfacing with the human brain. People who are being cryogenically preserved after death in the hopes of being resurrected once new scientific discoveries are made. And those developments should be disturbing to us because they may seem like science fiction, but they are the result of an arrogant rebellion against the Creator. It's high treason being committed against the great King. But while we're disturbed about these things, and rightly so, we do not fear. Because the stone continues to roll. We've already seen in Daniel how the stone crushed Nebuchadnezzar. And now we see that stone crushing Belshazzar. The Lord Jesus Christ remains the Lord Jesus Christ. And He remains on His throne. And we know the hope to which He has called us. We know the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. We know the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are things that we know. We know Christ, who was raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. We know and we rejoice that God has put all things under His feet and has given Him as head over all things for us, His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. These are the things that we know. Belshazzar's confidence, his arrogance, his pride, all of these things were ill-founded. They had no basis. And he found that out very quickly when the writing on the wall was revealed to him. But brothers and sisters, in Christ, we have every reason to have genuine confidence, a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, 
because the king remains on his throne. So trust in him and rejoice in him. Amen.